Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Steve Russell on this ministry which uses planes to bring missionaries into remote jungle areas. We call ourselves the blue collar missionaries. Hmm. We don't do the translation, but we can Hmm. get other missionaries to that last mile, that remote place. We do that by air, land, and sea transportation options. Uh, We do it with our technicians. Uh, We do a lot of things, and we've done that uh, for 75 years now. Steve Russell, next. There's obviously a team of people which makes it possible for Bible-translating missionaries to contact unreached people and eventually bring them the scriptures in their own languages. An important part of that team are the pilots which fly these missionaries in to remote areas. JARS, the Jungle Aviation and Relay Service, has done this vital work for 75 years. My guest is Steve Russell, the president and CEO of JARS. He has an extensive background in the military, politics, and ministry, as you'll hear him explain. Steve, tell us about the origins of JARS. Well, the way it all really began was uh, during the First World War, uh, a young man named William Cameron Townsend. Uh, He was uh, in a a National Guard, a State Guard uh, unit, uh, World War One broke out, but he and a buddy had already decided uh, to go down to Mexico and try to uh, sell Spanish language Bibles and uh, preach the gospel. Uh, when the war broke out, uh, he was kind of torn between, do I go answer uh, the call uh, towards uh, missions or, or uh, what do I do? And fortunately, he had a wise commander who said, um, you know, you're going to do a lot more good uh, going and preaching the gospel than you will uh, killing Germans in France. Mm. And so uh, so he gave him the uh, deferment, and he and his buddy went down to uh, Guatemala and and, uh, and Mexico, and they, they were looking at working with some of the indigenous uh, tribes there, the Quechuquil, um, and he ran across an individual who, you know, could speak Spanish, uh, but... Uh, Cam did not know the Ketchikil language, and the man said to him, he said, well, why should I believe your God when he can't even speak my language? And so Cam assured him that God could speak Ketchikil, and Cam was determined to learn it himself. And that gave him the motivation to begin to translate the scriptures uh, in that language. And and that's really how it began. And so by the mid-1920s, uh, several uh, New Testament books had been translated by Cam into Ketchikil. And he saw a, a real move of God's spirit as he drew people to himself from that uh, particular tribe of people. And so Cam got to thinking, well, maybe I could take these techniques and uh, I could uh, teach other people how to do that. And so he comes back and he decides he, he wants to set up a, a like a summer course. And uh, a friend of his uh, said, you could do that in Arkansas. Uh, I've got uh, a place that you can come and you can use our farm. And and so uh, in the early 1930s, that became uh, the Summer Institute uh, of Linguistics. And uh, it was the idea that uh, if people would come, he would teach them the techniques and then they could learn how to learn languages and then translate God's truth in, into their own language. And so that that's really how SIL International began, uh, and uh, Summer Institute of Linguistics uh, is now SIL International. They hold uh, all of the United Nations worldwide uh, responsibility for assigning um, 
languages uh, and what they are, enumerating them, uh, keeping track of them. Uh, but they still very much uh, are a part of uh, translating God's truth uh, all over the globe. By the 1930s, uh, many young people were excited about uh, doing this, and they began to grow. And Pioneer Mission was helping Cam uh, with some of these translators uh, to support them. But it began to grow so fast, they said, we, we can't keep up with you. And so he got the idea then to form a support organization uh, that he would call Wycliffe. And, you know, Wycliffe, uh, uh, now yeah. Wycliffe USA and Wycliffe Global Alliance and Wycliffe everything. It's, uh, you know, scores of organizations worldwide. And uh, they would help uh, support the missionaries as they would go out. But Cam really had uh, a passion for getting into remote areas and the jungles. And he saw airplanes as a way to do that. Um, he wrote a guy named Bert Dargue, um who was a, a world-famous flyer, hmm. and uh, he had done a circumnavigated South America with some old Douglas uh, biplane float planes. And we have the original correspondence between these two men. It's fascinating. And um, he's asking them all, how would you use airplanes in jungles to, to reach remote people? Hmm. And that's really how the idea began for jungle aviation and radio service uh, as it became known. Uh, World War II broke out. Uh, that obviously uh, complicated some things, but it also exposed uh, a whole generation of young men and women to, there's a great big world out there. And so in 1946, he got the idea to uh, do uh, jungle aviation. And SIL was like, well, we're not sure it's going to be expensive. And, you know, why don't you uh, look, there's some other organizations forming. Why don't you work with them? And he's like, well, we've tried, but their priorities are not our priorities on Bible translation. And we need to reach these people in remote jungles. So with that, in 1948, uh, the jungle aviation and then it was jungle aviation and radio service. Now we're called jungle aviation and relay service. Uh, but that that was uh, what JARS uh, stands for. Uh, jungle aviation is still very much uh, where we operate uh, on uh, you know, Amazonian rainforest, Congolese rainforest, uh, Melanesian rainforest. Uh, we, we have operations worldwide and uh, we have our uh, home here in Waxhaw, which is a story uh, all its own, Waxhaw, North Carolina. Um, 600 some odd acres that was uh, donated by uh, Henderson Belk of the famous Belk department stores. And mm. uh, he gave us that property in 1961, and that's been our home base uh, ever ever since that time uh, when they moved it from Urena Cocha, Peru, uh, where there was expansion all over South America, but then we came here. So that's a, a thumbnail sketch of, um, of our work. And what 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 is JARS about? Okay, we, we call ourselves the Blue Collar Missionaries. Hmm. We don't do the translation, but we can hmm. get other missionaries to that last mile, that remote place. We do that by air, land, and sea transportation options. Uh, we do it with our technicians. Uh, we do a lot of things, and we've done that uh, for 75 years now as, as we're approaching uh, now even our fourth generation of missionaries uh, that go and fly the planes, uh, you know, do the maintenance, um, you know, pilot the boats, uh, drive the land vehicles, do the training, all of those things. It's, uh, it's exciting work. And what is the goal of it? Well, if if you're sitting in you know Nevada or California or uh, you know like well how can I reach the nations you know here I'm 
you know, I'm a truck driver or, well, you know, I'm a banker and uh, God's blessed me in these things and I, I, I can't go to the nations. That's where JARS comes in. Uh, we can partner together and all of us as the body of Christ equip the saints. We can do the work and we can reach the nations uh, together. And then maybe uh, it's like, hey, I'm, I'm interested in actually uh, uh, putting my hands on the levers, how, but I don't have the skills. How would I do that? Mm -hmm. Again, where JARS can help guide those wanting to serve in that capacity. We can give them the training and the skills they need and then deploy them overseas uh, for such service. So, Well, that's a wonderful introduction to JARS celebrating their 75th anniversary this year. My guest is Mr. Steve Russell, the president and CEO of the ministry. Well, uh, it, it, we have so many, I have so many questions to ask you, Steve, but sure. one is John do you think of the jungle? Well, it's a jungle. How do the pilots land the planes? Getting the they take the missionary in, and of course sure. that's a whole other story about how you encounter an unreached people. That means that maybe they've never even seen a uh, an outsider, a white person, right. whatever. But how do they sure. how do they even land the plane? Well, uh, you know, you look at your uh, your rainforest. Uh, they typically will start in the mountains uh, and then uh, they develop into uh, flatlands and just vast tangled mm. river valleys. But it's really all of that. Um, and so there are some things where you would have to land on a jungle mountain strip. Uh, oftentimes what happens is that uh, we can go in with helicopters there uh, because it's a smaller patch uh, that would have to be cleared or mm. carved out. Other times you will see uh, nationals uh, that are there that would literally take four years with hand implements uh, to carve out a runway. And these runways might be 800 feet long, 17 degree slope, uh, very difficult. One mm. way in, same way out, winds notwithstanding, it wouldn't matter. Uh, you've got the strip and you have to uh, be able to land on it and get also back out um, in the same way that you came in. So it's, it's really unique flying in that the skill sets that our pilots uh, uh, possess uh, are, are really unlike uh, a lot of what uh, others may have. And then, you know, you get down to the lower uh, valley areas of the jungles. Uh, you've got uh, maybe some broader uh, rivers uh, as they flow out, uh, but it's still very remote and windy. And that's where these uh, planes can come in on float planes, uh, you know, planes with floats or uh, we're able to come in uh, with uh, small watercraft and uh, boats uh, to uh, use the maritime or combination of that. Um, and then you've got trails and land vehicles uh, from the villages. So all of those are the types of skills in our uh, air, land, and sea components that we have uh, at JARS. What can you tell us about the countries which you serve, which you work in now? And if I can ask a kind of a compound question, how many sure. pilots do you have? How many planes? Sure. Uh, so right now we operate, we begin the work, uh, obviously, in uh, Mexico, Guatemala with CAM. Uh, but in 1948, uh, CAM got the vision uh, because the door was open for the gospel in Peru. And uh, they initially set up in a place that was named Urena Cocha, Peru. Um, uh, Cocha being a lake. Um, and they would, uh, they made a seaplane base there, amphibian uh, base. Uh, and from 1948 to 1961, that was our international headquarters in an international place. It was kind of interesting. 
um, th things really began to open up. Uh, then we began operations all over South America. Uh, Ecuador became one of the next ones, and then Bolivia, and then uh, Colombia, and and other places uh, that we saw Brazil. Um, now, today, uh, we still supply pilots to partners in those organizations. Many of them uh, now have their own aviation capacity, uh, like we see with uh, Azus de Socorro in Brazil. Uh, but yet, we will still provide uh, pilots and mechanics. Uh, we will provide training and assistance uh, to that organization. Another one of our partners is uh, South American Mission, SAM Air. Uh, they operate in Peru uh, in the very places uh, that we began, uh, and so those are, are some of the places that we still support, and we assign people uh, to those partnered organizations, and we do much of uh, their training as well. In Africa, uh, we have our own uh, SIL aviation outpost in uh, Uanda in Cameroon uh, and mm. work in a lot of the uh, remote areas there with language groups. Uh, we also have partners with uh, African Inland Mission. Uh, we train all of their pilots and all of their mechanics here uh, at the at the North Carolina headquarters. And so they're a great uh, partner uh, for us. Um, and then we also operate in uh, Indonesia. Uh, one of our former uh, outposts now has also uh, the body of Christ there, grew up and mm. uh, became uh, their own uh, pilots and mechanics like we saw in Brazil. And that organization is in Indonesia, in Sintani, uh, and it's called Yajasi. Uh, we still very much, uh, we supply pilots and mechanics uh, to uh, those locations still. We provide training and assistance uh, as well. And then in Ukarumpa, New Guinea, uh, we have uh, SIL Aviation Outpost there uh, that has been operating uh, with airplanes since 1961 mm. and uh, has been on site since 1956. Uh, so there's a lot of work and you say, well, wow, why, why so long? There's over 800 languages in New Guinea um, that, and you say, well, how can that be? Um, imagine a moment for uh, a jungle mountaintop and you have people that live up there, uh, three to 5,000 of them say, and while they will have their sphere of circle of influence and they'll come down the mountain and they'll hunt and they'll fish, they bump into others. They might trade with them. They might be hostile. Um, eventually, though, uh, they, they literally become these uh, own language groups and own nations sitting on top of these mountaintops. And they're the only ones that speak that language. It's not like any language around them. Uh, it's just where human beings uh, have gathered and, uh, you know, they, they speak a language. So what happens is, is that translators will go in. Uh, you know, a contact made, and they will uh, try to help them preserve their language. They will alphabetize it so that they can uh, then teach them, uh, you know, literacy. And then from that, then they will begin to translate the Word of God, usually starting with uh, maybe the Gospel of Mark or something like that, or Luke, and then uh, then they'll work on the whole New Testament. Then they'll work on the uh, Old Testament. And that literally will take decades of work to do. A whole career. You say, yeah. And it's like, okay, well, is that, you know, is that worth it? Of course it is. Uh, you know, God told us uh, to go. And uh, when Christ gave us the Great Commission, uh, going was inherent. That was not the command. The command was to make disciples. Mm -hmm. Going was just a part of it. Uh, so we help in uh, assisting in the go. Uh, you know, taming that last mile and getting people so we can reach the nations.
people that are familiar with history, aviation, jungle aviation, you mentioned Ecuador, and of course that'll make uh, some people think of uh, those, was it four or five young yeah, men, Jim absolutely. Elliott and others, Steve Saint and so on, that were trying to reach a remote the Alka Indians? And yes. it, what is yeah, it? They, they were the uh, Warani or Waradani, uh, also uh, are other names. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, JARS had a, a part of all of that story. Uh, we were operating uh, in the area. Uh, we did assist with some of the search and stuff. Uh, the actual plane uh, belonged to Mission Aviation Fellowship, one of our great partners. Um, in fact, our very first pilot uh, that we had for JARS was on loan from MAF, and it was uh, Elizabeth Betty Green, and mm. she flew this big beast of a biplane amphibian from World War II called a Grumman Duck, and that was our first airplane, and she helped train folks uh, how to fly that. So we've had a long association with Mission Aviation Fellowship as well, and still do today. Uh, but the uh, five, um, you had uh, Nate Saint and uh, Roger Darian and, uh, you know, others uh, that, that were there uh, that were, um, you know, Elizabeth Elliott's husband, Jim Elliott, you know, uh, yeah. the, the five uh, missionaries. And that really inspired a lot of people. It's like, wow, you really have these remote people still today. And it begs the question, you know, you'll have uh, Professor Highbrow from Educate You out there saying, well, you know, you're you're running their culture. And I would beg to differ. We are we are not when we translate God's word and take his truth to human beings that Christ died for, that he loves as much as you or me. Um, And in essence, if you see a language disappear, the culture of that group of people also disappears. Mm -hmm. Uh, what we see with the translators is they go in, they're preserving a language. And consequently, yep. uh, if you give them their language and you give them the word of God in their language and the written word, guess what? You have preserved a culture there. Now, if they want to put beads and feathers on it, fine. Uh, you know, that that's what human beings do. We yeah. all have our different uh, nuances uh, as God has created us in his image with uh, creativity. Um, and, and so really... Uh, to not take the gospel is to, one, not obey the command to make disciples of all nations. But, you know, if, if we think we're doing people favors uh, because we're somehow harming their culture, uh, I, I would counter that argument with no. We are preserving their language and preserving their culture and allow them to interact with the nations in which they live, which, by the way, a lot of the nations welcome that because it helps them uh, take care of their own citizens uh, that they're responsible for in those national boundaries. Well, my guest, Mr. Steve Russell, president and CEO of JARS, they're celebrating their 75th anniversary. And uh, there's many more aspects of this uh, I'd like to ask you about, Steve. But before we run out of time, I want to ask if somebody is uh, interested in this, if they're listening to sure. this, maybe they're a, a, a pilot or a hobbyist or they want or they're just interested in some aspect of JARS mechanic or some other support staff What's involved in uh, getting involved in the ministry as a staff member or in any other way? We truly can fulfill the Great Commission uh, when we look at doing the work together. And and people can do that by supporting us financially, or they can do that by coming and volunteering, or they can come and serve, and we can train them and equip them to go do the work overseas. Um, you can go to jars.org, that's J-A-A-R-S dot org, jars.org. Uh, you can find us there, and I would invite people uh, to also look 
uh, in our 75th uh, uh, anniversary documentary called Whatever It Takes, mm-hmm. which was done by Emmy award-winning uh, filmmaker and producer Peter Braswell. It's it's wonderfully done documentary, and you can watch it for free uh, by going to our website, uh, jars.org, J-A-A-R-S dot O-R-G. And there you can learn all kinds of aspects about us, learn our history, and then how we might be able to guide you to partnering so that we can go reach the nations together. Well, Steve, you have an extensive background, as I mentioned at the beginning. You served in combat in a number of different venues uh, in the U.S. Army. You um, served as a U.S. representative. You served in Congress for Oklahoma. You were an executive pastor. How did God lead you with, with, with that background to become involved with, uh, well, not yeah, just involved, but president? Crazy story. Um, you know, I. it's truly Ephesians tw- uh, 3.20, uh, beyond all you could ask or think. Uh, yeah, I, I've had multiple lives crammed into the one that I live, and I found in the course of my life that the greatest ability that we possess is availability, mm. uh, that God promises to equip us for His kingdom work, and that we can boldly go and ask Him for that equipage and for that resourcing if we're just available to go work for the kingdom. I've done that as an infantry combat soldier. Uh, I was a uh, an infantry officer for 21 years. I commanded at every level from uh, 36 paratroopers all the way up to a thousand soldier task force in Iraq. I was involved with the hunt and capture of Saddam Hussein. Uh, Simon and Schuster published my mem- memoir called We Got Him. Um, in my previous life, I really looked at the military uh, as my ministry, uh, but also being a good soldier. Uh, that, you know, uh, Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul talks about, you know, no one is encumbered. Uh, they serve uh, as a soldier. Mm. Uh, Christ uh, talking about the greatest faith he had ever witnessed was from a despised occupying Roman soldier. Um, you know, so you, you look at ways to serve, and I certainly had that in my DNA uh, as a warrior. But I came to Christ reading a Gideon's New Testament mm. at 13 years of age. Um, I picked it up in the uh, hallway of my high school, uh, junior high school. And the power of God's truth really drew me uh, to him. And then I was able to uh, to become a Christian. I surrendered to preach at 15, and uh, I was a youth pastor in college, was ordained in college, and uh, really looked at the military then as a ministry after that. But after I left the military, the Saddam capture really uh, changed a lot of my life, and it gave me uh, a political career I never knew I would have. Uh, I served in the Oklahoma State Senate and then in the U.S. Congress uh, and did a decade in politics and uh, was very grateful to do that. Uh, got to share the gospel from the House floor uh, in speeches, uh, would uh, constantly uh, be able to portray God's truth, uh, either in scripture or direct quotation in committee meetings, a lot of that. Um, it was an honor to do it. It was an honor to serve there and uh, worked on a lot of religious uh, issues, uh, you know, protecting the First Amendment. Mm-hmm. And then after that, uh, went back into full-time ministry as an executive pastor, learned how to fly in Congress. And um well, started uh, on a challenge. Uh, we were sitting waiting for a vote one day, and a buddy of mine, uh, we got to talking about flying, and I said, yeah, I always wanted to learn to fly and just never did. I guess that plane's taken off now. And he said, well, I can teach you how to fly. And so he challenged me to go down to Louisiana at Monroe. Uh, Ralph Abraham, uh, he was uh, serving uh, as the Louisiana 5th uh, District at the time. 
And uh, he said, you come down, you can stay with me and Diane on the farm. He said, we'll start you on a Monday and see how far you get towards solo by the end of the week. And so I started on a Monday and on a Friday morning, I soloed uh, a Cessna 172. It was exhilarating. And I, I had the bug after that. And uh, Oklahoma City was uh, a lot of the area that I represented. Of course, the uh, FAA uh, is uh, headquartered in Oklahoma City, the Federal Aviation Administration. So I, I dealt with a lot of aviation issues, and it certainly helped inform that. Uh, but I had a burden, really, for cockpit shortages on the Armed Services Committee and on other things. And I thought, how can we do something to fill cockpit shortages in missions? Uh, you know, I saw the shortages in the military. I saw the shortages in commercial aviation, um, general aviation. And I began to ask the questions uh, about mission aviation. And so when I left uh, politics, I formed a, a little nonprofit called the Redeemed Flying Corps, where we would uh, take volunteers sitting in pews uh, that had assets or, or uh, skill sets. And we began to train youngsters. And uh, within a couple of years, we had a few planes donated to us. Uh, we had created uh, several teenage pilots, a couple of mechanics and uh, a lot of solos. And in the course of that, I uh, was... Asked by Jars, a guy from our church, he was in the maintenance department, led it, and he said, hey, can can the Flying Corps send a few uh, pilots and mechanics out to help us uh, with hangar work? Um, you know, we need somebody to scrape paint so we can stay on the engines and the avionics and stuff. And I'm like, yeah, we're, we're qualified to scrape paint. We'll do that. <laughs> so we came out on a missions team last year and uh, scraped paint on a helio courier and... Uh, had a wonderful time. Three weeks later, I got approached about, uh, you know, would I uh, be considered uh, for possible uh, nomination to become the next president and CEO of Jarvis? And I thought it was an absolute joke. I said, yeah, right. I, you know, trying to open it up and see what, uh, you know, what foreign country that this email was from or whatever. It uh, turned out to be real and showed it to my wife. And uh, she said, is this for real? And I said, what if it is? Would we go? You know, um, mm -hmm. all five of our kids in Oklahoma City, uh, my elderly parents, uh, you know, I finally, after 17 moves, uh, wanted to come home and live a life of peace. And uh, those were good times. Uh, but I thought, man, if if God is calling, yeah, we'll go. Might mm -hmm. be excited. And that was my wife's response. So I said, OK, yeah, uh, I'll answer the email. Four months later, uh, after just coming out on a mission, steam scraping paint to uh, the unanimous board decision, they asked me uh, last summer to come and lead uh, the organization. And I took uh, the position on 1 October of last year. So uh, very humbled by that. Uh, did not see it coming, had no resumes out, but it just shows you how God works, that it's all his work. It's his kingdom. And uh, so that's how I got to Charles. <laughs> it's pretty... <laughs> Pretty uh, different path. And I don't have the typical missionary stories that many do, but I do understand operations well. I have a lot of international experience and I do know how to lead. I've done a lot of that. Have you taken any of these flights into these jungle areas yourself? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I sure have. Uh, we got out. Uh, uh, I had the privilege to go out to Guambat Village uh, in New Guinea. Uh, it was amazing to see uh, the work there. Uh, you know, about uh, 3,600 people live up in this mountaintop all on its own. And, but what's so neat uh, is you get out and you interact with them. Uh, you know, they're, they're, you can just see the peace of God on these people that, that literally, you know, prior to that, 
so many of these villages, you know, they're boiling leaves in a pot to see uh, which woman is going to be sacrificed that year. Or something. I mean, this still goes on. It, it's amazing. Uh, but then you land and you go there and, and, and you see the peace of God uh, mm-hmm. and you see these people preserved in their own language and making a society. And it, it's uh, it's very encouraging. And then we got out on the uh, island of New Britain, uh, landed at uh, Gazmata, and there's like <laughs> these destroyed Japanese aircraft off to the side <laughs> of this remote strip left over from the war. And then you get out and you interact uh, with the locals. And it, it's just, it's really neat stuff uh, to see that God loves us so much that he will move in the hearts of his people to take his truth to everyone and everywhere. You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, Steve Russell, President and CEO of JARS. For more information or to watch the documentary about JARS titled Whatever It Takes, go to JARS, J-A-A-R-S dot O-R-G. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's Bethel McGrew on the hope and new identity India's untouchables find in Christ. It, it you know gave him the proper mentality like okay I am a sinner uh, you know it's not like I'm perfect I do I do need to repent before God for the sins that I've committed mm. but then once I've repented then I am I am a beloved child of the King I I have um, status and standing I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ um, and I don't need to feel that I'm worthless anymore. That's tomorrow at the same time right here on His People. Thanks for listening.